Good evening, everybody, and welcome to another fabulous Data Protection Month episode. Uh, this evening, we once again have the illustrious Howard Marks. Uh, very excited to have you, Mr. Marks. Thank you once again for uh, for for deigning to uh, do an entire month of shenanigans with us. Um, this oh, evening, I always enjoy shenanigans. <laughs> we are full of shenanigans tonight. Um, this evening, uh, we're going to do part three, all about data protection from RAID to driver arrays. Um, a couple of, of housekeeping notes first. Please get in on the conversation. I will be monitoring both the live feed and the Twitter hashtag for at vbrownbag and hashtag vbrownbag. If you guys have any questions, issues, concerns, um, you want to throw rotten tomatoes at me, feel free to uh, do that via the Twitters or here. And um, with that, let me turn over the controls to Mr. Marks. When did they add rotten tomatoes to Twitter? <laughs> All right, there you go, sir. All right, show my screen. You guys have the right screen? All about data protection, part three. You got the slide, not the presenter's mode, right? That is correct, I got the slide. <clears throat> all right, then that's the right one. Well, welcome to all about data protection from RAID to drive arrays. For those of you who are new to our little series, I am your not-so-humble speaker, Howard Marks. <laughs> I've spent the past 30 years consulting and writing for various trade magazines, from PC Magazine to Network World to Land Magazine to Network Computing. Um, I now occasionally pontificate at uh, Search Storage and the other Tech Target-related <clears throat> sites, but I've shifted my real focus to being the chief scientist at Deep Storage which is an independent test lab and analyst firm where we do things like prove that a node in a scale-out storage system can fail without the system losing connectivity to the data by destroying it with several pounds of thermite. Because if you're going to break something, you might as well really break it. <clears throat> I am co-host of the monthly Greybeards on Storage podcast with my good friend Ray Lucchese, and you can find me on the Twitters at DeepStorageNet. So at the end of our last episode, we understood RAID pretty well, and we understood how RAID as a concept and disk drives have grown up together so that we no longer have disk drives that are even intended for important applications to be used alone. <clears throat> but storage guys are, by their very nature, paranoid individuals. And for some of us, N plus two data protection simply wasn't enough. What if three drives, I mean, three drives failed all at the same time. Dun, dun, dun. And the boffins at Oracle listened to us paranoid schizophrenics and when they came out with ZFS they turned RAID to 11 which gave me the opportunity to have both a spinal tap and a binary joke in the same slide. <gasps> uh, one, one binary being, of course, three. ZFS lets you have three parity strips. They use Reed-Solomon erasure coding. It integrates with the log-structured file system so that the massive overhead of having to do read, modify, 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 write for every small write doesn't really kill your performance. And it's yet another extension. The, so RAID, including you know, RAID Z3 from ZFS for the really paranoid, um, addresses all of the scenarios of drive failures. I can have one drive fail. I can have two drives fail with RAID 6. I can have three drives fail. I can have mirrored drives for good small write performance. I can have very wide stripes and RAID 
six or RAID Z3 for sequential performance. But all of this still bottlenecks at the controller. And if the controller fails, then my data is going to go offline. <clears throat> so, of course, vendors decided to come up with systems that had multiple controllers and higher degrees of resiliency. Why? Because they could charge higher prices for them. Because a dual controller storage system could be sold for three or four times as much as a single controller storage system. And <clears throat> several models fell out of this that have now become standard. <clears throat> the first we already looked at when we were talking about compound RAID is a, a single controller with failover. And so we have two systems, data is synchronously replicated between them, details in a second. A more sophisticated solution uses two controllers and because initially we were dealing with SCSI and SCSI was a bus, we could have, as the picture shows, two controllers, two initiators connected to that same SCSI bus and they could talk to the same drives. With there were high, there are high-end monolithic systems like EMC Symmetrics that are <clears throat> in detail beyond our little webinar series. And then there later developed multiple scale out models where we had various solutions built up out of building blocks, blocks like bricks that we'll return to soon. So the simplest model is a single controller with failover. And this was generally used at the low end for systems with IP storage, that is NFS or iSCSI, uh, because the failover in <clears throat> IP storage is relatively simple. When a controller fails, its partner can detect that failure and adopt the virtual IP address w.x.y.z so that the users <coughs> could automatically connect to the same IP address. If each of the individual nodes itself did RAID, which was common in systems like left hand and the uh, HP store virtual system that left hand grew into, then it's essentially compound RAID in the case of the diagram RAID 51, where we both mirror and have single parity protection. Uh, the problem with single controller with failover systems is, first of all, the failover takes a noticeable period of time. The replication across what was generally standard Ethernet introduces a substantial amount of latency and data has to be stored twice or in this case twice plus two parities which means that the system is quite media inefficient. Now when we first mentioned a dual controller array, <clears throat> we were talking about SCSI, the old parallel version. And that SCSI was physically a parallel bus. So you could have two controllers here referred to as LUN6 and LUN7 controlling a common set of disk drives. Um, at any given point in time, a disk drive is only paying attention to one controller and, or another, but there's an arbitration system built into the SCSI command set to manage that. When we made the transition from parallel to serial connections, the, we could no longer use a bus, but had to make point-to-point -point connections between controllers and drives or and there are intermediate devices 
known as uh, SAS expanders that allow fan out as well, but it's a point to point or a switched connection. Um, that meant to ha allow two controllers to have access to the same drive. That drive had to have two ports to connect to. Today's SAS drives and the fiber channel drives that served as a transition between parallel SCSI and SAS are both multi-ported. They have two ports in each drive, making this connectivity simple. SATA drives, on the other hand, only have one port because SATA was designed for a lower cost desktop as opposed to disk array environment. So to use SATA drives in a dual controller enterprise array, you need an interposer, the card now on the slide. And that basically has a chip that presents both SAS ports and multiplexes the requests onto the single SATA port of the drive. Um, interposers are to some extent inherently evil uh, because two additional connectors and one additional chip make them a all too common source of errors themselves. And um, I would much prefer systems that don't use interposers. Hmm. <coughs> when we How Howard, we have, we have yes. a quick question, but I think you might have uh, alluded to that just now. Um, with the SATA interposers, can you have two access the same drive at the same time? No, Is that but, you, but you can't with SAS either. Okay. Um, SCSI is a connection-based protocol, so a controller takes ownership of a drive as a set of protocol exchanges between the controller and drive before it can send data. And if a second controller tried to attach to that drive, the drive would say, sorry, I'm busy at the moment. Gotcha. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> Sometimes you just have to explain things the way network guys understand them. <laughs> nice. Well, it the more you dig into things like SCSI, the more it looks like a network, you know, mm. like, you know, some layer, you know, <clears throat> some layer five or six protocol. <laughs> uh, and so the vast majority of the storage systems on the market today are dual controller, what we came to call modular arrays. They have two controllers and <clears throat> 99 and 44 one hundredths percent of the time today in this context and most of the time moving forward that controller is an x86 server and so the vast majority of today's storage arrays have two x86 servers and then they are connected to some set of shared media most commonly, there's a set of SAS expander chips between the drives and the two controllers, and all of those drives plug into multiple shelves <clears throat> that are connected by SAS. And each SAS cable from controller to shelf has four channels, and today that channel is 12 gigabits per second. That means that today, two x86 servers could be attached to a thousand or more disk drives. Now that's unlikely if those are SSDs because the performance of the controllers would bottleneck at hundreds, not thousands of drives. But it's certainly something that we do all the time with 7200 RPM near-line drives where we want to store a lot of data with sub-second latency, <clears throat> but not sub-millisecond latency.
once we have two controllers, we need to define how those two controllers are going to interact. And three common models have emerged. The simplest of those is the active-passive model. In an active-passive system, the active controller does all the work. And the secondary controller sits there basically doing nothing, waiting for the primary controller to fail. Now, in reality, there's some data exchange to keep cache and metadata in memory in sync that is coherent between the two controllers. But the primary controller could be very busy, and the secondary controller will still be at single digits of CPU utilization. <clears throat> the advantage of an active-passive system is its simplicity. There's less going on, and therefore let fewer things that could go wrong. The designer of an active-passive system has to build each controller big enough to handle 100% of its anticipated load. Now, the problem is, when the primary controller fails, the failover will take some noticeable amount of time. It is, however, almost always faster than the 30-second SCSI timeout. And so while it may take 10 seconds and then and all of your servers will stutter because the storage system is offline for that 10 seconds, <clears throat> it will come back before the system times out. <coughs> and so things pick up right where they left off. The problem with active-passive systems is that the laziness of the second controller offends some people. The second model for the dual controller array is called ALUA. It stands for Asymmetric Logical Unit Access. So in the old, old days of SCSI, a disk drive that existed directly on the SCSI bus was a logical unit and a tape drive or some other device that had an address directly on the bus was known as a logical unit. And with jumpers or dip switches, you set the logical unit number on each disk drive making sure that they were unique because if two drives on the same bus had the same address, data would not be able to know which of them it was supposed to go to. It would get confused and drive off the highway <clears throat> star in a movie being used at driver's ed classes in high schools. For some reason, the logical disk that a storage system presents has acquired the moniker LUN for logical unit number because it emulates the disk we used to have to set the logical unit number on with the annoying little jumpers and switches. <clears throat> so the logic that's what the logical unit in the Lua refers to. Uh, there's a T10 and T10. Insights, the information, is the portion of the American National Standards Institute that deals with our industry, and the T10 committee defines SCSI, and that means all of the commands and software APIs that make up SCSI, and because Fiber Channel is simply SCSI embedded in the fiber channel physical protocol and iSCSI, well, leave, leave it to say, SCSI is the lingua franca of storage. Um, there is a standard form of ALUA, but those of us who are storage folks tend to use the term ALUA to mean any system where each controller owns 
some set of the logical drives that it's presenting to the hosts that are accessing the storage. And so in my example, one of the controllers has a blue outline, the other one has a green outline. LUNs one and three are owned by the blue controller. LUNs two, four, and five are owned by the green controller. <clears throat> if a request comes in to a port on the blue controller for data from LUN two, which the blue controller does not own, it is called a trespass, and the blue controller sends the request to the green controller, which then returns the data. This allows each controller to maintain cache state and metadata for its LUNs without worrying about the, that information for the other LUNs. Um, you need to optimize the hosts to connect to the system so that they know which controller owns which LUNs because the trespass process adds noticeable latency, about half an I.O. of latency on a typical Alua system. <clears throat> Note, because both controllers are active, although they're not active for the same data, vendors will call this an active-active system. So when you talk to a storage vendor about the architecture of their system, you should, when they say active-active, ask them if that is a Lua or what we will call true active-active in a slide or two. One variation, most particularly used by Pure in the Flash Array M and the Flash Array X, is that rather than having memory on each of the two controllers which stores the cache, they've moved the cache out to these top four slots on their chassis which are PCIe connected to the two controllers through some PCIe switching magic. <clears throat> this means that whenever either controller updates the cache, they don't have to send the message to the other controller so that it can keep its copy of the cache coherent. It reduces the, you don't need to keep two copies of everything so you can reduce the amount of memory. Each of those modules still has the data protections you would expect of the cache in a production array. And it reduces the failover time when access to a LUN has to be transferred from one controller to another. In a true active-active system, both controllers have all of the cache and all of the metadata to access both LUN, all the LUNs equally. And this requires a low latency, high bandwidth intercontroller link. Uh, many of the systems that use this approach use <clears throat> PCIe non-transparent bridging between the two controllers. Uh, the software is relatively complex the big advantage is that there's no failover delay uh, between controller A and controller B because controller B is essentially running in lockstep with controller A all the time. So it's important at all times that if there are multiple copies of the cache in multiple controllers, that that cache be synchronized or what we call coherent. <clears throat> so anytime that there's a write that's accepted at controller A, it has to replicate that write to controller B, which stores it in its fastest memory layer, which would, excuse me, in its fastest store persistent layer, which 
in an enterprise array would be non-volatile RAM with some kind of <clears throat> battery backup. And only then can it acknowledge the write. Even reads involve transfers of metadata so that both systems can know the last, or excuse me, so that both systems can maintain the same cache eviction algorithm. So if these are caches that are being managed by an algorithm like least recently used, when data is read via controller A, controller B has to update <clears throat> the last timestamp on that block in the eviction metadata so that they can maintain caches. Lua systems can maintain independent read caches, um, but that reduces the performance of the system for the first few minutes after a failover because the cache in the new controller or in the now active controller for new LUNs has to be warmed to the appropriate data. So if we compare these dual controller systems, um, both active, passive, and active, and Alua systems have the failover stall that can be 500 milliseconds to 10 seconds or so. In an active passive system that affects all of the LUNs the system is publishing, in an Alua system it affects those LUNs the failed controller owns. And remember, in both of these cases, failed doesn't necessarily mean um, there was an, an explicit hardware failure, but it may also simply mean that we've transferred control from one controller to the other because we're doing a firmware upgrade. <clears throat> People Howard, like, yes. Quick quick question. Um, this, this is for the Alua with trespass scenario. How does the yes. system handle data coming back from a different source than where it was requested? How, okay. So how does the host system? Handle data coming back from a different <clears throat> source than where it was requested. Um, either oh. the host system knows that both that, so in a fiber channel environment, hmm. it will be clear that the response is coming from a different worldwide name than the request was intent targeted to. But the host system will have knowledge that that worldwide name is acceptable for that logical unit. <clears throat> and that, in fact, is the subject of the next slide. Oh, perfect. In an iSCSI environment, the response comes from the virtual IP address, regardless of which port it came out. And therefore, the host doesn't even know that it asked controller A and got a response from controller B. Gotcha. <clears throat> so most people like active-active and Alua systems because they put more CPU to practical use. <clears throat> the problem is I've seen too many Alua systems where both controllers were running at 55 to 70% CPU utilization under normal conditions. And this can happen with storage systems that have a large number of features. And as you turn more and more features on, all of a sudden the amount of CPU required <clears throat> grows as well. I've seen administrators not notice that until they decide to do a firmware upgrade and fail all of their LUNs to one controller or the other, and now demand for performance from the remaining controller is 120 or 130 percent of what it can deliver. So <clears throat> there are some gotchas. Uh, as I get older and less doctrinaire about things, uh, I find the argument about the advantages of one or the other 
kind of amusing. Um, while data gravity was making disk arrays, they had a very interesting model that was active-passive, but the passive controller was used to build a full-text index of data in snapshots while it was sitting around doing nothing. I think that that's an interesting approach, although with Spectre and Meltdown, the thought of running applications like Elasticsearch in a container on my storage array are be is becoming less attractive. And so, as the question indicated, if I have multiple controllers and multiple pads, I really should pay attention to how I use them. Um, so, the simplest case is for the multipath software, and there's multipath software built into all of the host platforms you're, you're likely to see today. The Linux kernel includes multipathing, uh, VMware includes multipathing, Windows includes multipathing. Um, and most vendors who have systems that don't behave as a classic Lua system or as a classic active-passive system provide, or in the case of some of the three-letter companies, sell a plug-in for each operating system or a hypervisor <clears throat> that optimizes multipathing. Um, both Windows and, you know, I'm not much of a Linux guy, but both Windows and vSphere um, include a, VM, a standard, a Lua optimizer, which simply ensures that trespasses don't happen unless there's been a path or a switch failure in the storage area network. Um, this is one of the differences between NAS and object storage protocols and the block protocols. Both Fiber Channel and iSCSI <clears throat> have built into them the logic to manage paths, have preferred paths and allowed paths to allow data to return on a path that isn't the path that it took and still be recognized as coming from the right place. Um, NFS up to V4 uh, doesn't include that kind of multipathing. NFS v4 and SMB3 add multipath knowledge um, to those file-based protocols, but unfortunately um, NFS4 and SMB3 adoption has not gone as quickly as some of us would like. And that means that if you're running storage over NFS, that you need to provide resiliency at the network layer where the SAN protocols are designed for um, independent pathing. Notice that in the diagram on the slide, SAN switch A and SAN switch B are not connected to each other. And this is the standard way storage guys do things so that each SAN, A and B, is independent of the other, only um, the only connections are at endpoints which connect to both A and B. In a NAS environment, we'd have to use LACP or other network layer protocols to provide path resiliency. And so now we've built this set of technologies that will let us build a disk array with two controllers and a Lua, <clears throat> and, but it's still going to present as a LUN what most of us in the field call a RAID set, that is one set of disk drives <clears throat> defined by some RAID protocol. Uh, so that might be a 4 plus 2 RAID 6 set, 
for example. And that logical drive would be only the size of that, um, which is nice if I need very large logical drives. But as the size of disk drives has grown, and now the size of SSDs has grown past the size of the databases and other objects we're going to put on them, I want a Vegematic. I want to be able to slice and dice and Julian the data in those RAID sets to present multiple volumes, drives of various sizes, built of multiple extents using compound RAID that understands that it's simply writing two copies of every block and calling it RAID 10, not <clears throat> hierarchically building RAID 1 on top of RAID 0. And in a server, I would call that function a volume manager, and that was the next major advance in the storage array. And it was as late as when I became a storage guy full-time in 2001, 2002, that low-end storage arrays from all right, I'll say it, Far Eastern suppliers um, would generally not yet have this feature built in. And so they could only present large quantities of data in the size of the RAID sets. By 2005, this is a standard feature. And the next step is to say, well, what about thin provisioning? I like to joke that thin provisioning was invented so that storage guys can lie to DBAs. Because every Oracle DBA I've ever worked with would come to me and say, I need this much space. I need 100 gigabytes or I need a terabyte. <clears throat> and they would also try and explain to me how many spindles of 15K RPM drives they needed. I would respond like Foghorn Leghorn and say, go away, kid, you bomb me. And give them the space they needed and more performance than they asked for or would get from their drives because I was the storage guy, could apply my magic. And then two years later, I would discover they hadn't used 15% of the amount of space I had allocated to them because what every user asks for is enough space to store all the data I'm going to generate if my project is immensely successful <coughs> over the next five years. And then I'm going to multiply by pi <coughs> just to make sure that I never run out. And every system administrator says, well, this is my boot drive. And if my boot drive fills up, the system crashes. So I'm going to say, that I need 100 gigabytes for my boot drive because I need 20 gigabytes. And then there are going to be patches. And over time, it's going to grow up. And I'll multiply by pi and make sure there's some more free space just in case. And this means that the, frankly, very expensive storage capacity on our storage array actually costs four to five times as much per used gigabyte as it does per gigabyte that we buy from Dell EMC or Hitachi Vantara or whoever else our storage system provider is. But what if I could say create that 100 gigabyte drive for the lying sack of crap that is the DBA, oh, did I say that? Excuse me, for my friend the DBA. Nice. And it only allocates space as the data is written. Early versions of this would say, okay, we're going to take our volume manager and automate it. When free space on a volume falls below one megabyte, we're going to allocate another one gigabyte extent. And if you were writing data very quickly to one of those, 
the allocating another one gigabyte extent might take five or six seconds, and you may run out of space three or four seconds into that five or six seconds. It was just not the cleanest system in the world. Today's systems, <clears throat> for many reasons, thin provisioning being just one of them, treat the volumes, the LUNs that they present, like files. And so the content of a storage system, if you could look at it and see each of the presented volumes data in this logical space of the rate set as a color, like I did at the bottom, it looks like a file system and files are distributed in extents. There used to be a lot of concern about two things. First of all, thin provisioning's impact on performance, modern storage systems, not a problem anymore. Um, the other problem is, but what happens if you actually run out of space? And this is a problem. If you create on your one terabyte array, 30 hundred gigabyte logical drives, and your users write one terabyte of data to their drives, there is no mechanism in SCSI for drive full. A computer sees a SCSI drive, SCSI drive is a hundred gigabytes, that's some number of 512 byte blocks, the highest number is some number, and the computer knows never to write higher than that because that's too higher than the maximum. But if it writes to someplace less than the maximum, there's no message in the protocol designed for a disk drive to tell a user computer, uh, dude, I told you you had 100 gig, but I lied. And we're out of space. That's just not a message that's defined. So running out of space in a thin provision system can be catastrophic. Uh, but that just means you have to pay attention. And you have to control how much you over provision. And you know this is one of those places where it's much better to work in an organization where you can buy more capacity in 90 days notice than in an organization where you have to spend your whole storage budget uh, once every five years and you don't get any more later if you need some. <clears throat> While it's possible, and you know vendors did, make thin provisioning work on top of traditional RAID, the correct method or the modern method is to, as I frequently say, redefine the letter D in RAID from drive to data. So modern distributed RAID systems and the first system I remember seeing that could do this was a Ziotech magnitude, um, compellent and three par both were early promoters of what compellent called, excuse me, what three par called chunklet raid. Instead of saying that I'm going to write one stripe, if I have a four plus two protection scheme, that that means I need six drives, each of which holds one part of that scheme, I can distribute that scheme across all of the drives in the system. As long as I'm writing four data strips and two parity strips to different drives in each stripe, there's no reason why the next stripe for that logical rate set has to be on the same set of physical drives that the last one was. So if you look <clears throat> on our slide, the light green block strips A1, A2, A3, A4, A5, AP. So that is a five plus one single parity strip. 
the bright green lowercase a strips are a double parity because there's an AP and an AQ. But from H through T, there's H and HM followed by I and IM. That's a mirror set. And those are just mirror blocks. So here, being told to use RAID 10 means I'm going to write two blocks on two different drives. Being told to write 5 plus 1 means I'm going to write that set of strips. But data is distributed across all of the drives. This means that I.O. is balanced across all of the drives. And so you don't develop that your, D, your SQL server is hitting its 27 disk drives very hard, but the other 300 disk drives in the array are sitting there doing nothing because they're not being accessed. You get higher IOPS where you need them. You don't have spare drives anymore. Every drive is busy all the time. So there's more IOPS in the pool than if you had five or six global hot spare drives simply waiting to be used. You can have different protection schemes, which means the amount of RAID 10 data you have doesn't have to be a multiple of some number of disk drives. And the big advantage is when you rebuild data, because unlike a traditional RAID system, which always has to do a 2-1 rebuild. So if you have <clears throat> a RAID 5 set and one of those drives fails, then you have to read data from the remaining drives and write to one hot spare drive. And that hot spare drive becomes the bottleneck as to how quickly the system can rebuild. How the probability of data loss is a quadratic function of the amount of time the system is degraded. So if you can cut your rebuild time in half, you cut your risk by a factor of four. In a distributed RAID system, like most modern systems are, <clears throat> a rebuild happens 10 to 100 times faster because it's a many-to-many -many rebuild. Every drive holds some data that's used in the process of rebuilding the data on the failed drive, and the resulting rebuild strips are being written across all of the remaining drives. So there's a huge amount of aggregate horsepower available for that process. <clears throat> because I and many of the vendors who use this technology still consider this RAID, it gets my hackles up when vendors who have newfangled systems say, we don't do any of that old-fashioned RAID stuff and we do things 20 times better. Because what those systems are doing is the same math and data placement as a distributed RAID system, except rather than distributing the data strips across multiple drives, across multiple shelves that are connected to the same controllers, they're distributing that data a little bit wider to multiple drives that are on multiple nodes of their scale-out shared nothing storage system. And that scale-out shared nothing storage system, if it runs in a VM or in a hypervisor, is a hyperconverged system. So when vSAN or Nutanix or Maxta or any of the other hyperconverged solutions say that they're doing erasure coding across the nodes, what they're really saying is that they're writing n data strips plus one or two parity strips 
to n plus one or n plus two nodes, just like RAID 5 would write to n plus one disk drives, or RAID 6 would write to n plus two disk drives. It's essentially the same data loss calculus. Now, they do <clears throat> involve all the disk drives in their system like a distributed RAID system does and compare, compared to classical RAID where D stood for disk drive, they do a much faster job at rebuilding and therefore have less exposure to data loss. But this is a minor variant. Because we're now extending a drive strip, a data stripe across strips on multiple nodes, the internetwork latency becomes an important factor. Many systems that do this kind of scale out rate or distributed parity um, use mirrored or three-way mirrored cache, write caches, and then only write to the erasure coded in their terminology data layers um, as they demote data because some systems, including some of the early left-hand systems, frankly, um, that did this kind of scale-out raid without that write buffer um, showed that network latency spikes could really be a problem. When storage people talk about erasure coding, we're generally not talking about n plus one or n plus two, singular double parity. Um, we're talking about more sophisticated, higher uh, resiliency, strictly speaking, more erasure tolerant coding methods that we normally talk of as about allowing x of y uh, erasures. So if I have a system that is a 16 of 20 system, that creates 20 total data strips. And those 20 data strips are distributed across multiple devices for resiliency. The data can be recovered or reconstructed from any 16 of the 20 data strips. And so that would be an N plus four system. Um, some systems, that is some encoding algorithms, the math of which I must fully admit is beyond me. I have indicated a magic black box for taking data in and creating a large number of data strips out because all of these techniques require levels of math beyond my ken. I do, however, rest assured that people who specialize in these areas of maths have not only said, yeah, that'll work, but have used the word proven. And to a mathematician, proven is a very specific thing. And when the guy with a math or a lady with a math PhD tells me that they have proven something, then I take their word for it. So I take their word that the math works and that, that the black box creates the appropriate number of strips. Some systems, like Read Solomon erasure codes create n data strips and y parity strips. Other systems uh, combine the data and error correcting code information into each strip. Um, the best explanation I have gotten for this, which is only partially satisfying, is that you end up with data that is very much like trying to solve uh, n equations in any unknowns in high school algebra where they would say here are three equations uh, that have x y and z and between the three equations you can figure it all out and here we have well here's 15 strips um, they can have very high orders of resiliency many nines of resiliency um, 
and so you can have as such as a five of 15 scheme, a couple of commercial products like uh, HGSTs and IBM's CleverSafe will support. And that would mean you could lose two thirds of the devices without losing any data. Uh, unlike parity systems, you can't be sure that the stored data is equal to the number of strips plus the number of parity strips and that they'll all be the same size. Uh, some of these algorithms do involve a little bit of data expansion. Uh, they really, and so these erasure codes are generally used in object storage <clears throat> because as you can imagine, if I'm running a 12 of 20 erasure code, the read, modify at least eight strips, maybe modify all 20 strips, write is going to make write performance for small writes quite difficult. <clears throat> the really cool part comes when we say, well, what if I use erasure codes as part of my geosecurity or geointegrity project? So it doesn't matter how well my data is protected within my data center. It still remains vulnerable to becoming unavailable if the whole data center goes offline. Now that can be um, things as interesting as an asteroid strike. He said, kicking himself for not putting that animation in the deck. Uh, or as mundane as a guy in a backhoe cutting your internet connection in a data center. Um, and so all of our data has to be in multiple locations. Traditionally, we do that by replicating the data. And that means that if we wanted to keep data in three locations so that we were protected against any one of them going away, we would need three copies of the data. And that would mean 300% as much storage as data. With erasure coding, we can say, let us use a 10 of 15 erasure code and then store five strips in each of three data centers. Since I only need the strips from any two data centers, a whole data center can go offline. And this technology is available in HGST's product and in CleverSafe, the problem is that it's a relatively high bandwidth application because these systems aren't quite smart enough to only ask for 10 strips and then when that times out, ask for the other five. So when you read data, the system requests all 15 strips even though it only needs 10. And so there's a lot of network bandwidth utilization. Hmm. But that brings us to the end of tonight's chapter. Hmm. So All right. hopefully somebody out there has another question. Yeah, for, for the, um, uh, for the two thirds <laughs> of the space. Uh, so, so you're losing two thirds of your disk space, but not the IOPS. Are we talking here about the erasure coding? Yes, yes. Oh yeah, with these erasure coding systems, IOPS are not the right measurement. What um, is the right measurement? Megabits per second. Okay. These systems are for storing large objects. Uh, and gotcha. so you're not, you know, you, you don't run SQL Server on an object store. You do store all the photos that back up Amazon.com on gotcha. the object store. That's, so, so actually, as you were saying that, Graham responded, so you don't run a SQL server on them. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Nice. Um, now, in fact, in fact, these up, you know, the, the, the S3 API, which has <coughs> become the de facto standard mm -hmm. for these object stores, is HTTP get put. Gotcha. So, you know, an object is a file and you're getting a file or putting a file. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 
within those restraints, you start going, right, that's where Netflix keeps all that video. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. All right, so um, there are there are no additional questions. A lot of a lot of comments on um, wow, that's a lot of really good information. Um, a couple of comments on the appreciation of these Spinal Tap puns, um, th things things of that nature. But that that was that was a, a lot of information to chew on. I, I think I think most people are are dizzy. But that was that was absolutely fantastic, Howard. Thank you very much. Thank you. Cool. Um, oh, hold on one more. Uh, Oh, uh, Graham, Graham said that the erasure coding was very interesting. <laughs> erasure coding is very interesting. You know, even, at the, even at my level where it's, oh, look, a black box. What can I do with the black box? Um, I, I am unfortunately at the level where it's like, if I really understood that, it would be way cool. Mm -hmm. But I have given up on math. <laughs> Uh, Joe says that he's looking forward to the next chapter. Add some asteroids. I don't. I don't get that comment. <laughs> um, well, as you know, what else would take your database, your data center offline, but an asteroid coming from space? Oh, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> that took. Now, and, you know, and there was one point where I like I had that clip art, and I decided not to use it on one of the other slides, um, <laughs> and then realized, oh no, the data center slide—that was where you should use that. <laughs> nice cool all yeah. right well we will uh we will be seeing you again uh when, when's when is the are you on next wednesday we are, i am i am not on next wednesday um i am off to the uk to see my new grandson oh congratulations wednesday. fun um and we are now in the process of scheduling episode four um for the 31st uh, no, for beyond the 31st. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. We're going to push out? <clears throat> We're going to push that out. Um, the 31st, I'll still be in the UK. Got to go see that new baby. Nice. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, congratulations. Grandkids, grandkids are the best. You, you, know, you play with them, they get grumpy. You go, Mom? Here you go. Change that diaper. I'll, I've spoiled them. Yep. Now go, go change the diaper. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. Howard, thank you very much again, and uh, have a wonderful evening. Very good. Talk to you guys later. Cheers. Bye-bye.